When you're stuck in conflict, how do you step outside of the situation enough to identify ways that will break the patterns that are keeping you stuck? Today, you'll get some radical new ways to free yourself from the conflict in your life. Also, if you want to improve your communication results, please make sure that you've downloaded my free guide to my top three communication secrets. These three things are easy to put into practice and they'll help you stay connected no matter how challenging the thing is that you're talking about. So to download the free guide, just visit neilsatin.com slash relate or text the word relate to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. If you're interested in taking your communication prowess to an even deeper level, then consider grabbing my full Secrets of Relationship Communication course. It's more than three hours of bite-sized video instruction, totally focused on all the ways that you can change the communication dynamic in your relationship. Your partner doesn't have to do anything different. This is all about leveraging the way that you communicate which will change, and that will ultimately change the way that your partner communicates. So to join the course, just visit neilsatin.com slash course, C-O-U-R-S-E. Also, Relationship Alive couldn't happen without you. Not only being here listening, but I wanted to take a quick moment to also thank some of the lovely listeners who have made a donation to support the podcast and our mission. So, Valerie, Kirti, Cynthia, Julie, Maribeth, Kent, Laura, Sarah, Dave, Michael, and Sabrina, thank you all so much for your generous and in many cases ongoing support. And if you are finding the show to be helpful for you or someone you care about, just visit neilsatin.com support to contribute as well. You can choose whatever amount feels right to you and every little bit counts. So thank you so much for your support. And lastly, if you're looking for a community of people who listen to the show, consider joining the Relationship Alive community on Facebook. We're there to create a safe space to support each other in conversations about our relationships. Okay, that's it. Let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't managed to live a conflict-free life. In fact, it seems like it can be pretty easy to experience conflict with people in the world around us. And it comes up in our relationships, it comes up at work, it comes up with family, it comes up with your kids. And so I was tantalized when uh, a former guest, Erica Fox, reached out to tell me about a colleague and friend of hers who had just come out with a new book called Optimal Outcomes, Free Yourself from Conflict at Work, at Home, and in Life. And I thought, conflict-free? That sounds pretty good because conflict adds a lot of stress. And you know, I've, I went through a divorce about a year ago and that process wasn't conflict free. And, and, uh, my divorce before that wasn't conflict free. And in fact, there's, there are all kinds of opportunities to experience, um, 
rocky relationships. And this is particularly vexing for me because I put so much energy into trying to get it right and trying to master communication skills and, um, and bring, you know, openness and understanding to all of these conversations with people that not all the time. I mean, I don't want you to think that my life is just riddled with conflict, but occasionally, uh, blow up in my face. So I'm excited to have today's guest here with us to talk about this process of totally reframing the way that you see conflict, how you handle conflict, and how to escape from those perpetual conflicts that um, seem to be unresolvable. We'll see how we can go from unresolvable to conflict-free in today's episode. Our guest name is Dr. Jennifer Goldman-Wetzler. Uh, she's the author of Optimal Outcomes, as I just mentioned, and she is also the founder and CEO of Alignment Strategies Group, which is a uh, organization that is focused on creating health in other organizations and corporations. And uh, on top of that, she teaches a popular course on conflict resolution at Columbia University. So uh, let's dive right in. Oh, um, before we do, if you want a transcript of today's episode, just visit neilsatin.com slash optimal. Uh, or as always, you can text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. Okay, that's it. Jen Goldman-Wetzler, such a pleasure to have you here with us today on Relationship Alive. It's great to be with you today, Neil. Let's just dive in with... I'm curious to know how you, how would you define the way that you look at conflict? How is that different from like typical conflict resolution? Why is this not your, your grandmother's conflict resolution or maybe your Harvard business, uh, Harvard negotiation programs, conflict resolution? Right. It definitely isn't. It is built on that though. So my work in, conflict freedom comes out of doing the work of conflict resolution with people on the ground in the Middle East, Israelis and Palestinians, with corporate leaders in pharmaceutical companies and healthcare companies and financial services, um, professional services. And, and at some point, um, about five years into working, doing that work, I noticed that conflict didn't always get resolved, right? Uh, the methods that we've been teaching for the last 40 years around resolving conflict work well in many situations, but in some situations, they just don't work. And when I came to that realization, I, I realized I, I wanted to dig in and try to understand why not. And most importantly, what could we do to free ourselves from those conflict loops, those situations that just seem to go around and around and around and never get resolved, no matter what we do, no matter how well we apply the most, you know, latest uh, conflict resolution methodology. And so it took me about 13 years to write, get this book written. Um, and it's based on five years of deep research in the realm of emotions like humiliation and conflict. Uh, so the main difference really is 
when you find that you are stuck on what I call this conflict loop where you're just going around and around in circles with someone and not getting anywhere, stop trying to resolve conflict and ask yourself, what could I do that would be different from what I've been doing before? And we can talk a lot more about how to identify what you have been doing and then how to find how to figure out what else you could do instead. But the main key is take pattern breaking action, break that pattern that you've been stuck in with someone else and do something different. Yeah. And you don't need anyone else's cooperation to do that. Right. Right. I mean, not initially anyway. Um, and I think that is one of the biggest challenges, right? Is to kind of step outside of the, of the water that you're swimming in to get a sense of what at a higher level, what patterns are repeating themselves. Um, Cause I think it's easy to just say, well, you know, I keep going around with my ex-wife about the schedule with the kids. We just go around and around and around, but that doesn't really get you anywhere versus stepping back. And I'm wondering if you can highlight some of the typical patterns that people find themselves in. Yes. Yeah. There are four typical patterns that I identify. One of them is that we blame other people. Another one is that we avoid other people. A third is that for some of us, we blame ourselves habitually. And then the fourth is kind of counterintuitive, but it's that we often, some of us relentlessly seek to collaborate with other people, even when those very people have demonstrated that they are unwilling to collaborate or cooperate with us. So I call these the four conflict habits, and they're, they're default ways of operating that we get we tend to get stuck in. So if we're blaming someone else and they don't respond the way that we want, we'll just blame them more strongly and more and more and more and and then wonder, you know, why is this not working? So the key is to notice what your conflict habit is and then do something else instead. Yeah, and the relentlessly collaborative one, um, I, we, we corresponded a little bit about that one. That, for one thing, totally surprised me, and, and that was where I placed myself. I was like, oh yeah, that's me all the time. Like, No matter what I'm hearing from the other person, I'm convinced that there's some way to figure this out. And, and I wonder, I don't know this for sure, because I, I often can also find myself in some of those other patterns. You know, I can, I can blame, I can feel like there's something wrong with me. Um, I don't often shut down. Um, but I have a feeling that a lot of people who are listening to us today, that, that they may even identify with the relentlessly collaborative because they're here listening to the podcast. And, and, and I think that's, often the case. I hear from people saying, I'm listening to your show. I'm getting all these great ideas and nothing. And sometimes, oh my gosh, you know, thank you for the one thing that, that saved my marriage. Other times it's like nothing is working and I'm not really sure what to do next. Um, so how would you identify, how would, how would you identify whether you're truly being relentlessly collaborative, um, or, um, or actually secretly just like blaming others for like being stuck and, you know, like you keep showing up to the ball game, but actually, um, you're, you've, you're kind of unwilling to recognize the, the values that the other person is operating under. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a, a quick and easy answer to your question, which is that people can 
take a short seven-minute free quiz online to find out mm -hmm. what their conflict habit is, what their default primary conflict habit is. And they can go to optimaloutcomesbook.com slash assessment or just optimaloutcomesbook.com and then uh, click on assessments at the top right of the website. And you'll see two different assessments. One is about your emotion traps and the other is about your conflict habits. So you click on the conflict habits one and that will help you. Um, and, you know, either way, whether you take the assessment or you do some soul searching and try to identify it um, by reading the book and then asking yourself, you know, which one of these is mine, um, this takes some soul searching, right? It takes some looking inside of yourself and asking yourself uh, to be honest mm -hmm. with yourself. Yeah. So, um, I'm not suggesting that it's easy for us to necessarily always be honest with ourselves, but when we are, then I, my experience is that we have a pretty good hit rate, right? When you actually are willing to stop, take a pause, take a deep breath, and ask yourself, when I'm really honest with myself, how do I tend to respond? And you can even just keep one particular relationship in mind, because it is true, and I say this in the book, that our behavior can change depending on the context that we're in. So while we may have one primary um, conflict habit, you know, it may be true that at work we're less likely to blame people or more likely to blame people versus at home we might be more or less likely to collaborate, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it, one thing that's interesting about that relentlessly collaborative approach is that it can be maybe easy to feel like, okay, well, I'm, I'm the one who's like trying to find solutions here. And so it was interesting to have that identified as yet another potential problem. Um, mm -hmm. that in fact, like being solution focused and keeping, uh, continuing to show up may, may be part of that pattern that you need to break. Yes. And the reason why it became very clear to me through my research and also my practice with thousands of people over 20 years inside of organizations that relentlessly collaborate is sometimes a habit that keeps us stuck in conflict is because I've seen so many leaders and teams who the only way they know how to operate with each other is that they're supposed to collaborate. And when it doesn't work, they don't know what else to do. And so instead of, for example, having a difficult conversation with someone or letting someone go or quitting or saying, I'd like to be transferred off this team onto a different team, instead of having those kinds of really hard, again, inside of yourself, soul searching and then difficult conversations, potentially, people will just try and try and try and try and try to work it out. Meanwhile, wasting valuable time, money, energy, focus, all that goes down the drain um, when, you know, if they were willing to be honest with themselves and others, they could save themselves a lot of aggravation and time and money, etc. Mm. Yeah, we're skipping maybe a little ahead, but we can, we'll come back um, because this, this gets to something that you talk about as you're envisioning your... Um, your ideal future, um, and, and 
also trying to figure out what your optimal outcome would be. And we can talk a little bit about how those two things are different. You talk about the walkaway alternative and the ways that um, the walkaway alternative can can keep us paralyzed. Um, so would it be all right to to jump there for a moment? Because I think it speaks directly sure. to these relentless collaborators. Um, yes. About about how they in particular can at least frame what they might be missing about whatever situation they find themselves in. Yes. So something I hit on in doing this work and teaching this work over 10 years at Columbia in particular is that there are ways that we tend to fantasize about our alternatives that can really get in our way and keep us stuck in conflict. Um, so one thing that we tend to do is that we fantasize about the possibility of walking away from a relationship when that, when walking away would cost us so much um, in our own lives that it seems impossible to do. And so, for example, if you take a mother and a daughter, a story running throughout the book is about me and my own mom. Mm -hmm. And there were moments in my relationship with my mom where I fantasized about just calling it quits and just saying, I can't do this anymore. I am not going to talk to my, my yeah. mom. And, I, and if I'm, I imagine many listeners, either themselves or know people who have, you know, basically yeah, that cut off relationships. Totally. Yeah. Right. And there are plenty of situations where even as much as you might wish that you would could cut off ties with a family member or a colleague or a friend, there are so many costs associated with doing so that if you really look carefully at those costs, the costs of walking away are too high. And so we stay stuck because we don't want to walk away because we don't want to pay those costs. And yet we're not figuring out clearly what we can do instead. And so we stay stuck in this no man's land uh, of of staying stuck in conflict that's, you know, that can go on for days, months, weeks, years. Equally true is the opposite can happen, where we will convince ourselves that our alternatives are horrible and we'll stay stuck in a horrible relationship when actually the alternative or alternatives are not necessarily as bad as we thought. So I tell the story about um, a client of mine who was collaborating relentlessly with a few other of her colleagues, plus her CEO of her company, her boss at a healthcare company. And, you know, it was years that they were trying to work things out and work on their relationships. And it was because she just thought, if I don't keep this position, I'm going to have to move my entire family across the coast, maybe to another country. I'm going to have to resettle my kids. I'm going to have to find new friends for them, find new doctors. And she had just convinced herself that the only way she could leave this position was to uproot her entire family. Right. And when she really thought about it and we worked on this together, she realized that this was a story she had been telling herself that was not necessarily true. And in fact, she did eventually leave that company and did not have to uproot her entire family and was able to go into you know a slightly different way of working. She what didn't end up at a large firm. She ended up working uh, as a consultant. So, you know, she had to reconceptualize what she was going to do with her career, but the alternatives were not what she thought as horrible as she thought they were going to have to be. Yeah, I want to I want to so, ask you just like kind of a quick woo-woo kind of question. 
Um, cause I'm wondering, I noticed that as one is assessing these various options, you talk about essentially doing a, like a cost benefit analysis. Um, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering if you have a way of doing that, that helps people really quantify the, the cost and benefit. Cause sometimes, you know, if you're just looking at your pros and cons list, you're like, oh, well, you know, I got two on this side and two on that side and same for the other one. And so I'm just as stuck as I was before. So is there a way that you, when you're working with people, you really help them get at like, no, this, this cost, this might just be a line item in your costs list, but it actually kind of sinks the ship um, because it's that, mm -hmm. that dire or vice versa. This benefit way outweighs um, the cost of moving your family across the country and kids developing new relationships in school and all of that stuff. Yeah. Well, in many ways, I think you might have just answered the question, um, which is that people do need to look honestly at their cost-benefit analysis. So, the way that it works, and, and again, you can go on the website and there's a free resource um, at optimaloutcomesbook.com slash resources. And um, there's a whole PDF that will walk you through doing this practice where you would uh, have three, look at, be looking at three columns. One says, what are what could I walk away? What's my walk away alternative or alternatives? Uh, what would happen if I stay stuck in conflict? And what would happen if I go for my ideal future, what I've imagined the ideal future could look like? And I ask you to list your anticipated costs for doing each one of those three paths and also the anticipated benefits of doing each one. First of all, just to back up, I will say my experience in using this practice with many, many people is it often is much clearer than what you described. So, just in terms of the lengths of the lists. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is one metric you can use. So, if you have a very long cost list in your um, alternative column, and it's just a shorter cost list in your ideal future column, I think that's a pretty good indicator. Right. If you have got like seven bullets right. on one side of the page and only two on the other, it's clearer. But I think you're asking the question: What if you have only, you know, what if you have equivalent numbers of, of bullets under each of these three columns? Um, then I think it does require you being honest with yourself. And you could even, I mean, you could use a point system. You could assign, you know, what depth of severity of cost would I give this on a scale of one to five and put a number against each one of your bullets and then add, add up the numbers in each column and do it that way if you wanted to get kind of cerebral, more cerebral about it. But I think, again, it, you know, I would use your gut to come up with those numbers. Um, and it does come down to being honest with yourself. And the reason why I suggest people write these down is that we're often conducting this cost-benefit analysis in a more willy-nilly way inside of our own kind of minds and hearts. And so, are very often seeing it written down in black and white on a page helps people come to terms with the reality of what it is that they're actually facing mm -hmm. and the choice that they've been making. Yeah often to stay stuck in conflict yeah, and, I, and the cost of paying I, there. I, I appreciate that you're mentioning that because 
Um, that's something that's actually come up on the show a couple times. David Burns likes to talk about that actually in particular that, um, sometimes people choose to stay in conflict and they don't necessarily realizing they're making that choice. But I, I appreciate how that's one of the columns in that, uh, process that you identify so that people can really get like, what am I getting? What is the benefit out of staying stuck in this situation, whatever mm -hmm. it is? Um, yep. Yeah. And there can be real benefits. The problem is, is that there are often real costs as right. well. And we don't recognize that we're paying those costs every single moment of every single day. And so getting really clear with, oh, wow, I really am paying these costs. These other people are also paying these costs. This may not be worth it. To yeah. Me. I could. I could have a different way of being in this relationship potentially that doesn't get me all those costs, that doesn't have all those costs associated. Right. And actually, now that you mentioned the, the matrix and like assigning numbers, I think I've, I've seen where sometimes people will, instead of adding them, they'll multiply. So it like gives you like an even more extreme sense of, of how the, how the different options compare to each other. You know, addition, it might mm. seem really subtle, but when you're multiplying it, like, Mm. makes it exponential. Um, right. So let's, let's go back um, sort of to where we were. Um, we were talking about the different ways of first identifying your own um, patterns, like how you tend to operate in conflict. We talked about being a blamer. We talk about taking kind of shame on yourself um, about the situation. We talked about av uh, avoiding, um, and the, the relentless collaborator, you know, I apologize to all of you who aren't relentless collaborators that I relentlessly stayed with that topic for a few extra minutes. Um, one exercise that you talk about that I've never done before, but I used it to map out a, a conflict that I've been experiencing and it was super helpful was just that actually drawing out the a representation of the conflict and there's some unique aspects of doing that that I'd love you to talk about because I think it, it's part of stepping outside of the bigger picture and seeing like all the different things that are influencing the conflict that you're in. Um, so how would you go yes. about that process of mapping out your conflict for that kind of clarity? Yeah. yeah. So I first learned about this mapping process from uh, my advisor at Columbia, Peter Coleman. Uh, and it's very common in the dynamical systems world and network ne networking systems worlds. So basically, mapping means putting down on a piece of paper, just a great way to start is who are the most obvious people involved in the situation? Don't worry yet even about what the people are concerned about, just who are the people? And then stretching it from there and asking yourself to get creative. Who else is involved? What's a second layer of people that might not be so obvious? And you want to draw circles and put lines between the circles of showing how these people are connected. So, for example, in my family, you know, the most two obvious, in the example between me and my mom, the most two obvious people are myself and my mom. But then I, I've got to put down, you know, my brother, my father, and then my current family, my husband and my two kids, and then, you know, grandparents and aunt and uncle. And so the, the map keeps expanding. And, and, and then you want to get even more creative and ask yourself, what else could I put on this map that would help me understand this situation in a different way than I have before? 
So I've seen people put colors and you know, put a key in the map to show how people are related to each other or not, or where anger has been. So um, to show different emotions, you can either write the names of the emotions or again, use colors or any other way to describe what kinds of emotions are going on. I've seen people put hearts and X's to show relationships that are loving versus relationships that aren't doing so well. Anything that you can put on your map that will help you describe the situation in a different way. And then the final thing you want to do is take a step back and look at your map and see what story does this tell and how might that story be different from the story that you understood about the situation before you drew your map. And like you, Neil, just uh, suggested, the map often can help us see pressures and influences on ourselves and also on others that we had never noticed before. So for example, in my map with me and my mom, I noticed for the first time when I did it that my mom's relationships with her mom, her, my grandmother, and my aunt were very, very strong. And they had passed away a number of years ago. And my mom was reaching out to me because she wanted to talk because she had always talked to them. And I think she missed them. And it was only in my ability to see that her relationships with them were no longer present for her. And she wanted a relationship with me. And it was not going as <laughs> the way that either one of us wanted that gave me empathy for her. So mapping can really, you know, some of the benefits of, of mapping are that it can give you empathy for yourself and also for others and, um, and help you see the situation, see influences in the situation that you would just never be able to see without doing a practice like this. Yeah. And, and particularly, I think if you're stuck in either, in maybe the other loops, the blaming, the shaming or avoiding that empathy is part of what helps free you from the pattern. Like getting getting to actually yes. understand what might be, or as best as you can, what might be going on for the other person. Yes, and I would venture to say that it's even true when you are in, if your habit, if your conflict habit is relentlessly collaborate. Mapping can also give you empathy for other people in the sense that if you've been trying to collaborate with someone who either has been shutting down towards you, so just not cooperating back and kind of running away or being quiet and not working with you, or someone who's been blaming you back, mapping can, and a, a, one or two of the other practices can help with this too, but mapping can help you understand why they may be shutting down or why they may be blaming you back uh, or why they may be stewing in their own self-blame rather than working with you. Right. And I, I found too, for me, that it helped me get a little bit beyond the, um, now I'm forgetting the term, is it the fundamental attribution error, that idea that like, when other people are acting in ways you don't agree with, then you, then it means they're a bad person. Whereas when you do, it's like totally understandable. Am I, am I getting there? Yes. So yes. there's something yes. about the map that really helped me get past that for myself in the ways that I was characterizing certain things, certain mm -hmm. behaviors of other people that, that I've been experiencing in a, in a challenging way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. That is a very common outcome of doing the map. That's, I'm glad to hear that that happened for you. Yeah. And so the words that coming into my head right now is values. And I'm thinking about how that search for understanding a conflict on a deeper level brings us to trying to understand what's really driving us. 
um, and and perhaps what's really driving the other person. And you talk about like your your um, maybe you call them your ideal values, the values that that are easy for you. Um, but then you talk yes. about shadow values and how those could be contributing to the conflict. Um, so can you elaborate a bit on what a shadow value is and why that could be making our lives harder? Yes. So I distinguish between ideal values and shadow values. Ideal values are those things that we care about in life that we're proud to say that we care about. So these, you know, for example, for myself, I'm looking at a list of my values that I put up on my desk, things like healthy living, spirituality, love, adventure, leadership, making the world a better place. These are things I'm proud to tell you that I care about. And I do care about them. And that's in contrast to what I call our shadow values. These are things that we really care about in life that we are not proud to say that we care about, but that nonetheless do drive our behavior. And these for, you know, some classic examples of shadow values are things like status, power, recognition, financial security, safety, comfort. And, you know, of course, depending on the person, one person's shadow value could be another person's ideal value and vice versa. And that all can have to do with how we were brought up and the messages we received from parents and sports coaches and religious leaders, et cetera, about what we value and what's okay to tell people that we value, right? I've seen people put, uh, I have an exercise I do in, in my class where I have students come up and, and list their values anonymously on big uh, pieces of paper on the wall. And sometimes love will show up, for example, on both lists. Some people see love as a ideal value and others love is a shadow value. They were taught from a young age. It's not okay to show or express love outwardly. Mm. And so anyway, these are some examples of, of shadow values. And the problem with our shadow values is that because we push them down outside of our conscious awareness, they wreak they kind of ooze out anyway, and they tend to wreak havoc on our relationships with other people. So if you know, recognition is something that I really want, but I'm not willing to admit even to my own self that I want it, my behavior can come out as you know, other people looking at me might say, gosh, she's really like you know, asking people to shine the spotlight on her. And um, ugh, it's like just coming across in this way that's very unpleasant for mm -hmm. us. Um, or like, who does she think she is or whatever. Um, but if I can own the fact that I really do care about recognition, then I have a chance to work with it and honor it and acknowledge that I do care about it. And maybe I could ask my boss, you know, for, to recognize me <laughs> for my, I could say something like, hey, you know, I really worked hard on this. Do you, you know, what do you think about this? Does this, this project, you know, meet your expectations? Or, you know, I'm proud of the work this team has achieved and I'd like to, you know, have us all celebrate that in some way or some, you know, once, once we can honor these shadow values, we have the ability to work with them. And the kind of, I think, really cool part of shadow values is that we can sometimes recognize them in other people and we don't necessarily need to have a conversation with other people about their shadow values. But once we suspect that someone else might have a shadow value. Let's say we suspect someone else might really want to be recognized, but they have trouble admitting that to themselves or to others. You could actually give that person a gift by recognizing them in some way and see if that helps. Or you might decide, you know what, 
they may want to be recognized, but for whatever reason, that's not okay with me. I don't want to recognize them, but I can acknowledge that that may be what they want. They're having trouble saying that and let me work with that. How could I honor that even just in my own thoughts um, and acknowledge that that's something that seems to be important to them. That can go a long way towards freeing us from situations that have held us captive for, you know, in some time, some, some situations for years. Yeah, Jen, we need to take a quick break to mention this week's sponsor. If you are looking for some extra support around the things that get in the way of your happiness or achieving your goals, one great way you can do that from the comfort of your own home or office or anywhere really is BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can chat via text with your counselor at any time and you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions all without having to go anywhere. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. They also offer a broad range of expertise so that you can find the person most suited to helping you with your own unique situation. In fact, so many people are using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. So whether it's conflict, depression, stress, anxiety, your relationship, whatever's up for you, try out BetterHelp to help you move past the places where you are stuck. To start living a happier life today, you can try BetterHelp and you can also get an extra 10% off your first month as a Relationship Alive listener. Just visit betterhelp.com slash alive and join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash alive. And thank you, BetterHelp, for your support of the Relationship Alive podcast and our mission to improve relationships everywhere. All right, let's get back to our conversation with Jen Goldman-Wetzler. You talk about starting with what is in terms of any conflict. And so what you've been talking about really makes me focus in on how, like if we do have these shadow values that we are, that are not part of our conscious awareness um, and that may be driving how we act, then it's like the perfect recipe for, um, I mean, this is gonna sound obvious, but unconscious action, like in, in the way that you described someone who, for whom um, recognition was important and so they were always seeking it, but not really willing to admit to themselves that, that that's what they were doing and how that could cause so many problems. I mean, I just think there are so many corollaries potentially in our lives around like the things we do or don't do and what's really driving those choices and and how when we get honest with ourselves, like I'm imagining the relief that that recognition driven person might be feeling when they're finally like, you know what, this is important to me. And, um, you know, there may be some work that they need to do around accepting that that's important to them because um because of its shadow nature but it it almost i can imagine would open their eyes to how they are being in the world in a way that like if you weren't willing to re recognize yes. that value you wouldn't even see yourself that way and then that bumps you up against that that wall that you may have around how you are impacting other people and not being able to see yourself yes. clearly Yes. I mean, an integral part of 
the nature of shadow values is that we feel ashamed of them. And that's why we've pushed them down. So at some point along the way of our lives, someone somewhere or some cultural reference, something suggested some way we got the message, it's not okay to value that value. So for me, you know, one, an example was, is um, independence and autonomy. Uh, it's something that was always important to me, but somewhere along the way, you know, I got the message, you got to be collaborative, you got to be a team player, you got to help out, and it's not okay to have boundaries. It's not okay to say no. It's not okay to <laughs> do your own thing. Right. But this was a big problem for me because I like being independent. <laughs> I like being autonomous and setting my own schedule. Yeah. And, you know, so I think the thing about the shame is that when we can bring these shadow values to the surface and acknowledge them and notice that for me, that may bring a lot of shame, but there may be someone listening to us talk, having this conversation right now who's like, what do you mean? Like, why would that be such a big deal? Who cares? Because for them, they never did get that message that being independent or autonomous was a bad thing or a problem. And for me to know that and recognize there are plenty of people walking around planet Earth for whom, you know, independence and autonomy is not bad. I can then draw strength from that and find the courage and the ability to say to my mom, you know, mom, I love you. I want to talk to you. And right now is not a great time. How about, you know, tomorrow at two o'clock? And learn how to have a different way of operating out of that. Let go of the shame. Yeah. And I think at the back of your book, you have a, a whole long list of values. And um, perhaps you even have one on your on your website as well. Um, yeah. One thing that I really appreciated about that is that they're all framed in a positive way. And that for me is perhaps one of the biggest challenges about identifying shadow values is that my tendency would be to frame it as in a negative way. Like, you know, someone who sees autonomy, like it's not okay to be autonomous. They wouldn't, like if they were just mentally going through like, what could my shadow values be? I don't think they would hit upon the value of autonomy. They'd probably call it something like, um, you know, isolation or, you know, think of something yeah, that, or yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that is one way that I, I write about in the book as well about how to identify what your or someone else's shadow value might be. So if you've been pointing your finger at someone else and saying, you know, she's greedy, like one of my clients that I, in the book does, my question for you is, well, what's behind, what could be behind greedy for someone else? So, you know, what's the positive spin that they would say um, or that they may have trouble even noticing for themselves, but what could be behind someone seeming to be greedy could be wanting financial stability, but they can't admit it. So, it comes out, it oozes out in these um, unhelpful ways that look greedy. And so, there's a whole list of those uh, in the book about how to turn those around for yourself and and as you look at other people's behavior as well. Right. I'm thinking that it would be funny to, and maybe useful, to have a corresponding list that lists all the values in a neg like with negative words so that you could be like, oh yeah, that's like that's a word I use a lot to describe that person and like that could help you do that yeah. turnaround. Well, well, it is. I mean, <laughs> let me see if I can find it. That that list is in this oh, book. Did I miss uh, it? Maybe I did. Here we go. It's page 105. So, if you're interpreting their behavior 
as greedy or overly generous, it may be that they have a shadow value of financial security. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Or if you're saying this person is so passive aggressive, it could be their shadow value is competition. They really care about competition, but they're not willing to admit that they do. So it comes out in this passive aggressive way, or it comes out as they look, they seem to be aloof. You know, someone who's excessively authoritative, maybe that they have a shadow value of authority, but they can't admit it. And so it just comes out in this exaggerated way. Or someone who seems weak might have a shadow value of authority that they want to uphold their own authority, but they've been told that's not okay. So they hold it back. Or even someone who's overly controlling might have a shadow value of love. They, they want to be loving and it comes out in this controlling way because it's not okay with them to show their love in a more appropriate way. So the list goes. Yeah. On. Well, I'm glad to. Is that what I'm you glad meant? to see. It's such a good idea that you already included it in your in your book. <laughs> um, I'm glad I could remember that I wrote yeah, it down. Yeah, totally. I mean, I can't tell you there there have been several times where I've mentioned something in someone's book to them, and they've been like, "I wrote that. Wow, that's pretty good." Yeah. So, uh, well, maybe one could do like an an even longer list because that's you know eight or so long, and you could your your master values list is. Um, has lots to choose from. You probably have 50 or 60 values yep. there. So yeah. anyway, I appreciate that that creates this whole different way of trying to get related to yourself, to the other person. And this is all about ways of breaking yourself loose from your habitual ways of engaging in conflict, either in general or in a particular situation. Because as you mentioned, the particular particular situation could sort of frame what you're doing and that could change based on on who you're in conflict with um yeah so i like that as a way of of helping kind of shake things loose a little bit um but we come to that question of of how hard it is to identify something different and i've heard people like jokingly say like well what you know you seem so different what like what's changed in your life and people are like well you know when it comes time to make a choice i just do the opposite of what i would have done in the past so i suppose that's one way but i'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about as you try to really stretch yourself outside of like okay this is what i would typically do how do you find those options that you may do instead since they're obviously not naturally part of your repertoire. Yeah. Well, the first thing is to remind yourself that whatever you have been doing is the only thing that you do not want to do. But almost anything else, as long as you perceive it to be a constructive thing to do, anything else is fair game. Uh, so that really leaves a lot of opportunity because <laughs> there's only one thing that you don't want to be doing. The way that I conceptualize this is that I call this pattern breaking action. And so just to be clear about, well, what does it mean to break a pattern? So you first have to know, well, what is the pattern? So the, I define the pattern as whatever your conflict habit is and whatever you think the other person or people in the situation's pattern, uh, I'm sorry, conflict habit is, it's the two habits or the multiple habits that interact with each other is the pattern. So if it's, you know, my conflict habit tends to be blame and my mom's also is blame, then we're in a blame, blame pattern. Or uh, like one of my students, her conflict habit was shame uh, and 
her aunt was blame. So they were in a blame shame pattern where the aunt would just blame her for everything and she would just stew in her own uh, self blame or shame. So you want to identify the pattern and then ask yourself, what could I do that would break this pattern? Which means you're doing something different. So what is pattern breaking action? There are a few components to it. Number one, I suggest doing something simple because the situation is already typically pretty complex when you're in a long-standing recurring conflict. So you don't want to add more complexity on top of that. You want to keep your action simple. You also want to think about what would be action that would be surprisingly different. And that's where what you said comes in of people saying, let me just try the opposite of what, you know, and, and that can be a, an interesting way to think about it. Ask yourself, what would be the opposite? I wouldn't necessarily always go there because sometimes the opposite is also not going to be constructive. Uh -huh. Like if you've been blaming someone, then the opposite might be, you know, you might say to yourself, oh, the opposite of blaming could be to, you know, blame myself or to shut down. And I wouldn't want to see you do either one of those things necessarily either. But you want to think about what's what would surprise even myself here, but particularly what would surprise anyone looking at the situation or what might surprise the other person. So one, I think, constructive example of a surprising action to take, especially if you've been uh, either blaming yourself or blaming someone else or shutting down, um, could be to apologize. Uh, that's a kind of classic to kind of start with an apology. Uh, so, but to think to yourself, what's something surprisingly different from what I've done before? And then the other thing that I advise about pattern breaking behavior is that you want to think about it as a series of steps. So keep them simple, but have each one build upon the one that came before it. So it's like if you're deciding between, you know, having a big family intervention with your brother who has a problem with alcohol versus asking your brother if he wants to get together for a cup of coffee, opt for the latter, get together for coffee, and then from there, build from there. So what would be the next step after coffee? Maybe we'll want to, you know, have dinner with our spouses or just have dinner, you know, and then go from build from there. And that's how I would conceive of a pattern breaking path. Is that helpful? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And I, I just want to mention too that as far as the writing in your book, I I really enjoyed the the anecdotes that you offered. Um you referred earlier to I think the the greedy person. That made me think of the the saga of Bob and Sally. And I definitely don't want to give away what happens. But it was nice. It was kind of like a narrative thing that kept me guessing. And um and you do talk about in the book um, someone whose brother, who, who believes their brother is struggling with, with alcohol dependency and, and her struggles to, to, um, confront the brother and, and how what she ends up doing is totally different than what she thought she was going to do to resolve that mm -hmm. situation. Yes, exactly. That, that is the key is when, <laughs> that's what, what we want to happen is that if you're stuck and you've been kind of fantasizing about having this thing happen or you're like relentlessly collaborating, hoping the other person's going to collaborate back and it's not working to get you to a place where what you end up doing is completely just totally different from what you thought, that's how you become free. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about the envisioning your ideal outcome and, and how that's different than the optimal outcomes that, that your, your book is named after? Sure. Well, again, from so many years of practice with real people, what I discovered was so often people didn't really have a good sense of what they really want to happen 
you know, they know what they don't want, which is to be stuck in this horrible situation with this other person or these other people. But they often we we have not spent the time to really ask ourselves, what what do you want to have happen here? So <laughs> that's the core question, but with a twist and a caveat, because if we do ask ourselves that question, we often are using our rational thinking brain to come up with options and ideas. And the problem is, if our rational thinking brain could have solved the problem, it probably would have done it a long time ago. Mm, right. Yeah, <laughs> right? totally. So especially if we've been using the kind of you know principled negotiation, getting to yes methodologies that so many of us have been trained in at this point after you know 40 plus years of that work being around. So my advice is to put aside, put down the rational thinking brain for a moment and really engage our imaginations. And the best way that I know how to engage our imaginations is to use our five senses plus our emotions to do that. So to ask yourself, what would it look like in the future? What would it sound like in the future? What would it even smell or taste like? And I've had people say, you know, I'm going to have a meal with this person and we're going to drink the wine and we're going to smell the smells of the food wafting out of the kitchen and like really place yourself there using your five senses. And also emotionally, what will it feel like when we are in that ideal future state? But the thing is, we don't want to stop there. First of all, we want to get there and, and know what is my ideal future state. But we don't want to stop there because if we do, we might be off in fantasy land, like what I was talking about earlier, where we're like fantasizing either about a alternative that's not possible or we're fantasizing about an ideal future that's not possible given the people, given ourselves, all of our own foibles, all of our own strengths and also limitations and also all the strengths and limitations of the people that we're dealing with and the situation, the constraints of the situation. We want to become really clear on what are the reality of the situation and the people, including ourselves, that we're facing. So that's how I identify actually an what is an optimal outcome. It's both takes into account what is my ideal future that I can imagine, and also what is the reality that I'm dealing with. And when we have a sense of those two, that's how we identify what is an op a potential optimal outcome. Yeah, it's like adding to the costs and the benefits uh, adding that feasibility, like how how realistic mm -hmm. is this? I'm curious to know yes. how you, because um, it, it seems like, especially if you're stuck in conflict for a long time, you might be kind of pessimistic about the feasibility of particular outcomes. Do you have any helpful hints on how to identify if you're stuck in cynicism or, um, or you know, the converse might be true, right? Where you're just like, you have this pie in the sky view of what's possible. Uh, you know, I think that that strikes at the relentless collaborator who's just like, no, like I know that this is that we can re reach this win-win thing, and you know, it maybe isn't. So, yeah, on either end of that, do you have a sense of how to find your way to reality? Yeah, it might help to ground my answer in an example, and I wonder if you have an example that you would like to bring that we could use. Um, hmm. When when I divorced my first ex-wife, so the mother of my children, I had this vision of just how great that could be. Not the not the divorce part, but the the part where I felt like, you know, we're really holding each other back in these key ways. And if we just gave each other some freedom to be, we will thrive as individuals and we will be able to stay connected in a way 
that allows our children to to experience um to still experience like fondness and care between their parents um even though they chose to go their separate ways and as much as i would like that to be the case um it it hasn't quite gone that way and so in my cynical times i might say you know what it's just like i don't see that ever being possible the relentless collaborator in me i've tried and tried and tried i've tried this i've tried that i did have an interesting moment where i realized one thing that i had tried was a total violation of their boundaries that i thought was like totally fine so i i had that experience of like oh i was trying something that i thought was good and they actually experienced it in a in a very negative way so that shows me that i don't necessarily have all the reality in my scope of view but in a cynical moment i would just say you know what like i got to really start looking at those walk away alternatives in this particular context um yeah. because i just don't think it's possible but that could just be that i've been stuck in the pattern and and uh, mm -hmm. haven't figured out my radically different surprising way of addressing it um, or yeah. it could be that my like pie in the sky vision of us being able to sit around the table for a meal and laugh with each other and, and for the kids to experience what that's like, that that's also unrealistic and unfeasible as mm -hmm. simple as that seems to me to, right. to achieve. Yeah. Yeah. And it may be that that's not realistic yet or for right now. Mm -hmm. And that, um, coming to terms with that reality might be the most important thing that you can do right now, right? To acknowledge that the image that you had or the imagination, the imagined future that you had may not be possible right now or possibly ever. And if that's the case, that's actually not your optimal outcome because it doesn't match the reality of the people you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. So then the question becomes, well, what could match the reality of who I'm dealing with while also um, holding open the possibility that one day maybe we could get there. But for today, you know, what's like a small baby step potentially, maybe. Yeah. Even in that, in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. I see how that's different. It's saying, okay, the reality is this is a situation where it's possible that my cynical, this will never happen, is not true. It's also possible that my kumbaya vision is not true. Um, so given what is true right now, what is, like, what's a small step towards what I would still like to believe is possible? Yeah, like what's not staying stuck in the yucky conflict space and what's also not what and what's taking into account that maybe that's this is not your vision of the kumbaya is not what they want. Right. And if that's true, how can you acknowledge the truth of that for them right now and also not stay stuck? in the place that you don't want to be stuck in. Right. Right. What's the small step 
what's the simple, surprisingly different thing that you could do? I mean, let me ask you, what would be surprisingly different from what you've done before? If before, I'm assuming, let's say you you reach out and you say you want to have dinner together. Yeah, well, I, I've that- stopped doing all, all anything like that for sure. So, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. yeah, I'd I'd have to give some thought to it. I mean, the um, you know, one thing that occurs to me. I think I would really have to sit with it, but like, even like I'm at a point where I feel like I don't even do simple gestures, like sending a card on a special occasion or that sort of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, it was the kind of thing that I used to do, but then I just felt like, you know, why, you know, every acknowledgement that I would send, it would never be met. And so then I was like, well, why am, why do I continue to do this? You know, is this me just like relentlessly collaborating? So yeah, Yeah. I don't know. I might take it even a step further back. And for me, it might be doing my best to really acknowledge their reality. In fact, what if, what if their reality is that they just want to be as separate as possible? And then how could I honor that? Um, even, and, and how do I, how do I confront that for myself? Because just saying that Mm -hmm. brings so much sadness for me. Um, you know, sadness, just kind of feeling the loss. Like it's not that I actually Mm -hmm. necessarily, yeah, that's so interesting. It's not that, Mm -hmm. that there's something really about them. Okay. So (laughs) This is going to sound, all right, here's my unvarnished truth. I'm not sure that I really want them in my life. Mm. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. I mean, at least in yeah. the way that I've been experiencing them. It's more like mm-hmm. what I envision as possible, like what I want for my kids, what I want them to experience mm-hmm. and them to feel. And, mm-hmm. um, but there, there is a gap for sure between between getting to a place where it would feel comfortable around the dinner table and, and even acknowledging like, Oh yeah, I would want to do that. And I would want to do that maybe even Mm -hmm. for me, not just for them. And what would it take for me to get there? Um, I don't know. I might not, that may not be possible for me or it may be like, Oh yeah, it would just require these few things and, and that would be possible. And, and it still may be something that they would never want themselves so yeah well i want to back you up for a minute because i want you said something really important about acknowledging your own sadness Mm. that led you to then realize hey maybe that's not even something that i want necessarily to to reach out and be in a relationship in the way that i thought i did but you know a great first step in breaking the pattern can be, it felt to me like there was this light bulb that went off for you, that there was just like an aha moment before of, whoa, you know, this makes me feel sad. And I, and, and so I, I, Jen, just want to offer you, Neil, the opportunity to just sit with the sadness. Yeah. And also sit with that realization of, hey, maybe I don't want this as much as I thought this this kind of idealized future as much as I thought I did, given who they are, given how they've been responding to me. Yeah. And that that in and of itself, if you are able to sit with that uncomfortable, potentially uncomfortable feeling of, wow, this I feel sad. Um, and also that, whoa, maybe I don't want it as much as I thought I did. That's a great 
to me, those are great pattern breaking actions. Mm -hmm. And they don't have anything to do with anyone else except yourself. Yeah. But I can pretty much guarantee you that your behavior towards other people in the situation, them, your kids, will be different as a result of you doing just just being with what you just uncovered. Yeah. Yeah, that feels really powerful. And on a larger level, it, I, you know, it gets me thinking about the relentless collaborator and how, you know, at least part of that has got to be a moving away from like wanting to escape mm -hmm. the sadness, the loss, the the pain yeah. of things yeah. not working out. Um, yes, I would agree with yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Right. And I do want to point out for everyone's learning as well that a great, my most highly recommended first step on any pattern breaking path is what we just talked about and what you just kind of naturally did for yourself, which is to stay with yourself and be with yourself. Even if that just means take a pause for three minutes once a day and just breathe and just, you know, you can think about the situation or ask yourself questions based on the practices in the optimal outcomes method about the situation, if that's helpful to you, but to just be with yourself. And often the most simple step is to just be with whatever feelings you're experiencing. I mean, it's simple and it's also can be incredibly difficult as you've alluded to, yeah, right? Yeah. And can also produce incredible, huge breakthroughs in situations that seemed impossible. Well, we'll have to do a follow-up maybe on, on what happens next after I sit with this sadness. Mm. But I, I just want to say, mm -hmm. I appreciate your, your willingness to just kind of go there with me and, and, uh, you, you as yeah. well. Yeah. That was, that was yeah. helpful. It's always helpful to make it less theoretical and more real. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I also do want to point out that the patience to be able to not know what the final outcome is going to be, I think is also a key part of designing a pattern-breaking path, a key part of actually achieving an optimal outcome in the end, right? The ability to today say, I'm going to sit with my sadness. I'm going to be with my feelings. And I don't know whether five years from now, I might be able to be having you know, coffee with them and my kids at the same time. But for today, this is the step that I'm in. That, you know, it takes a tremendous amount of courage and patience and, and love of self, I think, and love of others. Yeah. So kudos to you for Thanks, Jen. being prepared to go there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do a lot of dwelling in the unknown these days, although I guess, I guess yes. many of us are, are in that vote for sure. Exactly. It is a good skill to have these days. Well, uh, Jen Goldman-Wetzler, thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, it's It's been, we did kind of a, like, it felt like almost like a spiral version of your book where we kind of like started at the beginning, went to the end and kind of yes. worked our way around down to like those core emotional experiences that are driving so much of, of what we do or what we don't do. Um so yes. I appreciate your being here. Your book, Optimal Outcomes, uh, is available. Um, do visit Jen's website, which is optimaloutcomesbook.com, where um, I got that right, right? 
You okay, sure did. so you can take that assessment that Jen mentioned. Um, there's another one there about the emotional traps that you tend to fall into. Um, and then there are lots of kind of supplementary um, pieces from from the book itself that are there as well. So um, definitely check that out, um, as well as Jen's other work. And uh, Jen, I just want to say thanks. Thanks for uh, for being here with me today and for and for going there with me. Right back at you, Neil. Thank you so much for bringing yourself to the work as I know you always do. Uh, it is a total pleasure to be in conversation with you, and I hope it's helpful for your listeners. I have a feeling it will be. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word PASSION, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive? either for a future or past guest, let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.